you or someone you love needs help for an addiction, where do you turn? Foundations Recovery Network offers individualized treatment for the whole person. Our goal goes beyond short-term sobriety. We address substance abuse and co-occurring mental health issues together, providing a firm foundation for long-term recovery. The first step is often the hardest, but we're here with a free assessment, insurance information, and treatment options. Our confidential helpline is available 24-7, so call 877-714-1318 and discover the Foundation's Recovery Network difference today. of That Sober Guy Radio. On today's episode, I have my lovely wife, Melanie Manter. What's up, Melanie? Hi, honey. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, absolutely. So today, um, as I alluded to in the past episode, I think it's important that we get into what it was like for you, um, obviously, when we first met, kind of what that whole, what how that went down. Um, when it was that you realized that I most definitely had a drinking and drugging problem for sure. And then also something that I'd really like to get into is what it was like for you when I decided to, um, enter into treatment and then lead this life of sobriety. Uh, I'd also like to discuss a little bit of what it was like when I got out. Cause I know that that was fucking super awkward as well. Uh, but before we get into that, um, be sure to check us out on www.thatsoberguy for past episodes. There's a bunch of resources on there. Also, please don't hesitate to email us um, at sobriety at thatsoberguy.com. You could hit me up personally at Seth, that's S-E-T-H, at thatsoberguy.com. Or for any questions after this show, you could hit Mel up at M-E-L at thatsoberguy.com as well. If you have any questions about whether you or a loved one may need help, you can contact Foundations Recovery Network at 877-714-1318. Foundations has nationwide residential and outpatient facilities, and they can provide a confidential assessment and review the best treatment option for you or your loved one. So as I previously alluded to, we're going to get into a little bit about um, a little intimate into mine and Melanie's relationship. We're going to talk about what it was like um, prior to treatment, what treatment was like and what treatment was like and what our life was like after treatment. Um, So I think we'll just start right off the top there, Melanie. Um, We'll kind of talk about the first time we met. I know it was was at Shane and Jess's wedding. Um, Super young. I was still most definitely partying. Um, and I can't remember who it was that introduced me to you. Maybe it was a self-introduction. Do you have any recollection of that? Um, I do remember seeing you guys wandering around the parking lot while I was getting ready in my hotel room. You were clearly inebriated and having all kinds of fun together, you and the other groomsmen. And then I do remember being at the wedding and seeing you sitting up at the head table And I wasn't quite sure at that point who you were because you did not live in town. So we hadn't really crossed paths yet. 
it wasn't until after the reception was well underway that um, I do believe it was a self-introduction, though. I think I was maybe outside on the patio when you walked by numerous times with your hand up, kind of like Forrest Gump telling me your name was Seth Manter repeatedly. Um, and I still at that point didn't really realize who you were until later that, you, you know, you and Shane and Jess were childhood friends, obviously. Why else would you be in their wedding? Um, and the, the night kind of progressed from there. It was uh, quite memorable and quite foggy at the same time, to be honest. Yeah, and just to be clear, like this was um, early, was it 2007? So this will be their 10-year anniversary this year. So yeah, it was 2008. Okay, so 2008. So I was most definitely uh, in the thick of my uh, drinking and drugging. And yeah, I do remember, actually, I, I don't really remember too much of how it went down, but I do remember that I was definitely fucking hammered um, the first time I met you. And I don't, I don't, I can't even say what really drew me to you. I I, I mean, other outside of your, your natural beauty, right? For sure. Um, but I, I do think a lot of it had to do with, with the amount, the, the copious amounts of alcohol that I had consumed, um, that day and leading up to, to meeting you. So I think it's important to, to, uh, highlight here that we met for the very first time when I was still caught up in the party boy status, the party boy life drinking, uh, most definitely using some drugs to, uh, get away and get out of my own head. Um, so that's, that's kind of why I wanted to talk about there that. And then I think, um, you know, after that, we kind of had gone our own ways. Yeah. We didn't see each other for a couple of years, I think. Um, maybe intermittently at some of Shane's music shows, uh, we came across each other at the Christmas party one year. That was pretty awkward and hilarious to recall. Um, your hair was long and it was flipping out under your hat and I went to say hi to you and you sternly stood up, turned around, walked away and didn't even respond to me. If that goes to show how uncomfortable he could be in a social situation, especially with someone that he didn't know. And I believe that you were at least high. So maybe not drunk yet because you drove there, but you were definitely high. Yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> it's 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 great that you point that out because obviously um, the drugs didn't do it for me. So it it it, it, came, it comes apparent that it was most definitely the alcohol that gave me the liquid courage for sure. I would agree. Most definitely. Yeah. So there are multiple times that we, we met um, over... Over the course of a couple of years, maybe two years, um, year and a half after Shane and Jess's wedding. And most of those times I remember uh, being more social events, right? So parties, um, Shane's concert when he was concerts when he was into the music scene. And during the holidays. So it was most definitely times where it was okay or it was... Except. situations that you would expect to see someone having a good time letting loose, whether they were drinking, uh, smoking a little bit of weed. Um, so as we met through those times, was there any instances where you thought like, damn, this fool gets down or was your thought of my drinking and drugging? Was it more of like, damn, this is just regular. He's just having a good time. Was there any signs that came up to you that, you would have seen like, man, this fool is fucking like out of control. Um, I definitely think the impression of you being out of control came much later. Because like you said, when we would see each other, we would be in social settings. And, and there are a lot of people in our group of friends that run around, myself included, that enjoy drinking and having a good time together. Um, especially because we would only get together a few times a year. So think the one time at a friend's Christmas party that I walked in the house and you know I probably had to work or something so I didn't get there till maybe nine or ten and you were already passed out on the couch kind of gave me a raised eyebrow and a little bit like damn Seth must have hit it hard like what is going on because his back was turned to the crowd he was like fast asleep there was and there was music there were people all kinds of stuff going on and he was could not be woken up by any means and Everybody just seemed fine with it. So I just kind of rolled with it. And then um, 
you know, at, at Shane's, at one of Shane's show, I remember you coming in and you were, you were much more personable at that point. You had just gotten there. You definitely went straight to the bar and got yourself a cocktail. And then you positioned yourself directly in front of me so that I could not see the stage. And I had to ask you to move your giant head out of the way. And you turned around and I don't know, I think you had some sort of comment, but you did move. Yeah, most I was most definitely a fucking prick. I mean, really, I, I don't know if it was an intentional prick, but didn't really have any um, concerns for anyone else. Uh, just going back to the to the to the party over at um, our good friend Rick and Nicole's house. What up, Rick? What up, Nicole? Um, you know, obviously that was normal operations for Seth to be a blackout drinker. Like I would hit it fucking hard and I would be done by the time that the party start started. So it's funny that you bring that up and that you remind me of that situation that no one really thought too much of it because they had already been around me for, you know, up to 10, 12, 20 years. And they already realized that that's just how Seth rolled. Yeah, I definitely, that definitely was not something that I was used to. I didn't, uh. I didn't come from a background of friends. I didn't grow up out here. So my friends that I grew up with, that certainly was not the type of scene that I would see when I walked into a party. But I soon learned after I met my group of friends that I still hold dear to my heart this day, that is definitely how a lot of them rolled. So it, it became kind of a normal thing. And it it didn't bother me, but it wasn't something that I partook in either. Yeah, for sure. It was, it was you know, it was definitely... Um kind of our norm, my group of friends normal operations to get fucked up and have a have a good time. I just took it to the next level and I was out by the time that the good time even got started. So yeah, and then going back to Shane's concert, that's when I really started to whether you knew it or not, that's when I really started to recognize you and I was like, "Damn, who is this fucking Melanie chick?" You know, like this is someone um who obviously has the ability to go out, let loose, kind of have a good time, be out in public, socialize. And I think in the, at that point in time, in the back of my mind, I was like, man, who, who the fuck is this chick? Like I, you know, this is someone that I'd be down to get to know a little bit. And I remember hitting Jess up a couple of times, like, damn, what's up with Mel? And I think at the time you were dating someone else. Um, not a, not a big deal in my mind. Um, you know, some things went down and I got a call from Jess one night and she was like, Hey, what do you think about going on a double date with me and my brother and and his girlfriend? And then I was going to bring Mel with you. And I was like, damn, dude, that sounds fucking hella cool. I'm down. Um, so we set up a date. I remember, um, I think we all met, we met at the Olive Garden, right? And I remember I was fucking, I was loaded. I had probably smoked a blunt on the way down to Vacaville. I was living up in Arbuckle at the time. Um, You know, we did a couple like, hey, what's up? You know, and I think that was the extent of our conversation. I do also want to allude to the fact that, yeah, I mean, we were drinking at this dinner, but, you know, it wasn't one of the... like it wasn't an opportunity for me to get shit house. Like I wasn't, there wasn't a shit ton of beer, beer at my disposal. So I think what I'd like to talk about a little bit is the awkwardness of that meeting. I know that for me, like I was pretty, pretty mute and I was high as fuck. So I wasn't willing to get into some deep conversation. What are your memories of that? Uh, my memories are. You know, everybody getting into the restaurant, obviously sitting down, and I knew everybody else there, so that part wasn't uncomfortable at all, but um, I think that you sat next to me. I think you were sitting right next to me. Yeah, So yeah, it was kind of hard to, like, look at you and talk anyway, and I could tell your face was really red, so I could tell that you were nervous, and of course, naturally, as a female, right, I was nervous too, uh, probably for different reasons that we now know, but, like... Uh, it was. It was very uncomfortable. I feel like there were some silent moments there between everybody and and you did not participate in the conversation really at all. So that was kind of hard. Um, I, it was really hard to gauge how well the date was really going because um, you never said anything. And, and as soon as dinner was done, we all got up and went our separate ways. And 
I think I, I left definitely feeling discouraged. Like, okay, well, that was kind of a bomb and I didn't even get to talk to Seth and it just, it wasn't, I'm, you know, I totally took it on myself. Like I must not have left enough of an impression for him to even want to talk to me. So that was, that was kind of hard. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, looking back on it too, looking back now, like I kind of, kind of alluded to this in the first episode when, you know, I didn't feel like I had the confidence to step out of my comfort zone and talk to a, a perfect stranger. Because at that time we, we kind of were strangers, even though we had um, interactions with each other through, you know, a, a year or two leading up to this. Um, I definitely didn't have the liquid courage that we often talk about and hear about in me. Um, I think it was probably maybe about an hour or so after we had all gone our separate ways, I got a call from Jessica and she was like, Hey, you know, what the fuck? Like (laughs) so on and so forth. Like I think she had expressed some of the ways that, that either you had made yourself feel, but more importantly, the way that I made you feel like I wasn't interested. And I think at that point, that's when I told Jess, nah, like, I want the opportunity to redeem myself. I think I got your phone number from her. I ended up giving you a call. We set up a second date um, and we met up for, for sushi. And from that point on, we hit it off. One reason that I, that I want to touch about touch on is I think the reason why we hit it off that, that at that, at our second date, when we went out and had sushi was we were drinking a shit ton of beer, right? I think we were at sushi for probably, um, you know, three or four hours. Our bill was probably upwards of $200. I was fucking hammered. I was loosened up. Um, you were nice enough to welcome me back to your house, ended up, uh, you know, staying on the ho- on the couch. And it seemed like from that point on, we were inseparable. We were, we still have, we there have only been a few times in the last eight years that we have been separated of rehab being one of them. So it was a good time. It was a good day. I have great memories of that first night. And I, I attributed the amount of alcohol that we were drinking to nerves and just kind of, you know, trying, trying to loosen up and get to know each other better without, um, you know, without feeling so stiff. So at that point too, I really hadn't, I really didn't think too much into it. Yeah. So, and, and it was that, you know, it, it, it was, it did, it did give us that opportunity to use the alcohol as a liquid courage, something that I had used my whole life and my whole drinking career. Um, but I don't think that it came apparent that I needed alcohol in order to converse. Or did you realize that? Um, no, I wouldn't have think I would at that, at that point, I would not have thought that you needed it any more than I did to sit there and converse for hours like that. I wouldn't, wouldn't have thought that at all. Yeah. And then, so after that, we, we had dated for a couple months. I would come down and and stay with you. You would come up to Arbuckle with, to my isolated nest away from all, away from everybody, a great place for me to get annihilated and do drugs on my own without, people ever knowing what was really going on. Um, And then we came up and we had this grand idea. It was the grandiose scheme, like I like to call it, that we would move in with each other. So what I'd like to talk about is after we had moved in together, after we had done a whole bunch of partying, at what point did you realize that, man, maybe this fool isn't just a party boy but this fool most definitely has a drinking problem. I actually distinctly remember the first time that I thought to myself, I think this is really serious. I think Seth has a serious problem when I found empty Budweiser cans in my shower of my apartment before we even lived together. Um, And that was quite alarming for me. And I wasn't really sure how to handle it. I didn't know how to navigate it. It was a conversation that I had never tried to have with him before. So at that point, I was just kind of started paying more attention. Because up until then, living by myself with my daughter, you know, there had never been alcohol in my house unless I was having friends over for a specific time 
And then once they were gone, the alcohol was gone. It wasn't something that was ever in my fridge. It wasn't. And when Seth, when I started dating Seth and he would come down and stay the night, you know, he would start stocking my fridge with beer. There'd be a bottle of Jim Beam on the counter. He brought a coffee maker. I fully blame him for my addiction to coffee. Um, you know, but it was, those were little things that I started to notice, but the, you know, the beer cans in the shower in the morning before you go to work was like, oh shit. And then I look in the garbage can in the bathroom and that was full of beer cans or instead of the shower, they'd be in the windowsill, you know, and I'd go out there and the 12 pack that he had put there the night before was already gone. And there was a new one open on the counter. It was like, you know, these were the little things I started to notice. And, but I, I really didn't know how to breach the conversation with you about it. And I didn't want know what to do. And in my mind, I, I remember thinking, okay, you know, like, you know, this is the, he grew up in a different way than I did. This is more normal for him than it is for me. Like, I don't want to judge. I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, put a damper on this good thing that I have going. You know, he doesn't, to me, drunk people were people that were stumbling, falling in, in my life and my family. When people were drunk, they were mean, they were screaming, they were yelling, they were hitting each other. They were like, that was my impression of drunkenness and alcoholism. And Seth is certainly not that way when he drinks. Um, so I hadn't really correlated the two too much um, because that's not what you would, you know, you were a good time. You were a good time to a certain point. And at that point, I hadn't seen you past that point yet. So when we moved in together, we hosted a lot of parties at our house after we would r- realize that running up four and $500 bar bills were no longer in our budget. Um, so then, you know, then you're in the comfort of your own home, which made it even easier to, for, for him to keep drinking and partying with our friends. I would just go to bed. You know, I wouldn't always see what the end of the night looked like, but then when I would wake up in the morning and he'd still be awake and there would be kegs floating in our backyard and friends would be passed out or sick on our couch and in our bathroom. I was like, okay, I can't, can't have this life for me. And I certainly can't have it for my daughter. Now, please bear in mind that I didn't have my daughter full time. So these weren't things that she was ever around for. Um, She has actually no memory of ever even seeing Seth drinking or drunk in the first, you know, year that we were together. Well, we were only together for six months before he decided to go to rehab. But um, so thank goodness for that. I'm grateful for that. Um, But uh, it, it, when we got our house together, he could no longer hide the fact that alcohol was something he needed on a daily basis, no matter what, no matter if we were, if he was going to work, no matter if he was staying home, no matter if we were hanging out with friends, no matter if we were cooking dinner, no matter like doing yard work, whatever it was, Seth had to have alcohol all the time. Um, and that was, that got pretty scary. Yeah. And I was very good at making excuses on why I needed to have the alcohol. Right. I think at the time, I think one of my, you know, the, the beer cans in the, in the, shower and the beer cans in the bathroom my excuse was because i worked nights the early morning were like my (laughs) late night so i was doing the reverse of what a normal person would do so i was always trying to um make what i was doing okay in my own head and trying to give it to people you especially on the outside that what i was doing was perfectly normal um even the, you know, the, the all-nighters, the couple all-nighters that we went through, you know, I came up with ideas and excuses as to why that was okay. Well, it's okay if there's four other motherfuckers doing it with me. Or if it's okay if it's someone's, you know, I don't know what it was at the time, maybe 30th birthday party. Because we were fucking celebrating. Um, so I always made excuses as to why I was doing what I was doing. So I think, um, what I'd like to talk about now is, so the party, the parties continued and we partied fucking hard and we partied for a very, very short amount of time, but it seemed like it was a long amount of time because we fucking partied. Like we partied our ass off. Almost every day. And it was it was an everyday party at our house because I wasn't working at the time. So I had the ability to drink all fucking day. And then, you know, by the time you got home, I was partying in a can like ready to go. <laughs> um, and, you know, you weren't 
you weren't too resistive to the idea until probably after we had lived together for maybe four or five months. Then it start. I noticed that it started to wear on you. I know there was a couple times that we had gotten in some big blowout fights. Not even. I don't even know what the fuck they were over. But I think a lot of the reason that we were arguing is because Seth was drunk, and maybe you were really wanting or realizing to come home to a sober Seth and have a normal adult life, not the party boy college boy life. That would be a pretty accurate description, if I recall. Um, yeah, I don't remember what any of our big fights back then were about either. But but I do remember the feeling of like starting to have the feeling like, okay, what's it going to be like when I get home tonight? Not that you were ever, not that it was ever bad. It was just what level of drunk is he going to be at? You know, because like you said, you were out of work and that was wearing on you as it was wearing on me and you know, all the stresses that come along with that, whether you're drinking or not. So, you know, he, he would, he would stay at home and he would drink all day and he would, you know, try and do stuff around our little house that we had and, and really try and look, you know, look, honey, look what I did today. Like, so that it would be okay that he was drinking all day while he was doing it. Like he was getting stuff done. So it was okay because I wasn't just sitting around drinking. I wasn't sitting around, you know, or sleeping or playing video games or whatever. Like, look, I, I trimmed the trees and I clipped the yard and I did, I reorganized the cabinets and I, you know, he would do things. Those excuses, they wore thin on me after a while though, because I, I did not understand. I think at that point I felt like I'd rather come home and just have you be like, I fucking hate being out of work. I fucking hate being here. You know, like this sucks or whatever. than have you be drinking about it all the time. Yeah. I think that's important too, man. Like that I was, I was, inadvertently masking the amount of alcohol that I was drinking with all the good things that I was doing to, to kind of hide the fact that I had been getting fucked up all day long. So that, that continued on for a couple months. And I, I, I remember, you know, there was a couple agreements that, okay, all right, babe, I'm not going to fucking drink anymore. And I think the longest one lasted for maybe three or four days. Um, what happened isn't important, but I do, I do remember we got into a, we got into a fight and it was pretty much like Seth, pack your fucking shit and get the fuck out. And it was at that moment, um, that I had really realized, um, that I was facing a serious major consequence because I was in love and we did outside of the partying and drinking and drugging. I truly believed that I had found my quote unquote soulmate and that I had found a way of life that I wanted to continue to lead. Um, so we, I think there was a, there was a, a period of time that we didn't, we lived in the same house together, but it was, it was very, very uncomfortable, whether it was three, four, three days, four days, a whole week. Um, it was in that period of time that I realized that I really needed to get help and that I could no longer carry on, the way that I was carrying on. I was sick and tired of needing the liquid courage to go out and party, to have a good time. I was sick and tired of lying to you on um, how much I was drinking and how I was, you know, kind of dealing with not having a job and not being able to contribute to our life. Um, So I think I went over, I had a little conversation with my mom. I came home to you and I told you that I was ready and that I needed to get some help. Is that fairly accurate? Yeah, pretty accurate. I do. Yeah, we, whatever our chosen fight was about at that point, I do remember telling you, like, you can do this to yourself, but you can't do it to me anymore. You gotta, you gotta go. Something's gotta change or you gotta go. Cause I can't have, I want you in my life, but I can't have you in my life like this. And I certainly can't have you in my life like this with my daughter. So you did leave, you did go to your mom's house, which, you know, at the point, at that point was surprising to me. Um, and I do believe that you and your mom called me together the next morning and told me that you decided that you wanted to go get help and that your mom was helping you navigate how to do that. You guys were looking at different rehab facilities and whatnot. And, and I was, I don't know if I had a sense of relief really at that point because I didn't know what that meant. Like I didn't, 
there, I have no previous experience in any of this. So I was like, okay, I guess, I guess that's what you do when you get to a point where you've, you know, I, I, I just remember being kind of confused, but of course, like supportive, obviously, if he wanted to get help in any way, shape or form, I was going to be supportive because he obviously needed it. And, um, and the fact that he was reaching out to his parents at that point in his life was, that was a big step for him. I don't want that to go unnoticed. So, um, I was very unsure. I was unsure of what that meant. I had been unsure about what that meant for our household for a long time, just with him drinking. So the idea of him going somewhere, um, you know, the, the week or so leading up to you, us actually taking you, there were a lot of questions and anxieties about what that meant for you to be away and, and what that was going to look like for you. And then also for Bailey and I at home, you know, and, and trying to figure out what I was, how I was going to tell her what I was going to say to my family. Uh, my family at that point had never been around Seth for a long enough period of time <clears throat> to, to see the side of him that I already knew existed, you know? And, uh, so they were kind of in shock a little bit too, but, su- but supportive if I remember correctly. So yeah, it was, uh, it was a really, I remember having a lot of anxiety, a lot of anxiety around that and just questions, you know, it was up until well, it was the unknown. It yeah, was, we totally were, we unknown. were going into the land of the unknown. And if, if I could rewind a little bit, I remember when I had that day that I had called you, cause we have been kind of going back and forth, you know, obviously, um, Mel had the nest that you needed to protect and you needed to protect yourself. And I, I remember a couple conversations that it was like matter of factly, um, and I don't fault you for this. I actually applaud you for this. Like you didn't believe, like you didn't think that I was really going to go off and get some help. And I, I want to, I want to make that an important, you know, that's something to highlight here is that we as addicts, we, when we decide to go get help or when we decide to make changes, whether it's for ourselves or whether it's for another, we look for instant, um, acceptance. And I don't remember getting the, and this is not any fault of yours, Melanie, but I don't remember getting the instant acceptance from you. I remember it pretty much like, okay, well, that's good, but what's next, right? It wasn't like I, I was, I had given you this great, uh, great news. And I, you know, personally inside, I was looking for a little bit of congratulates, but you didn't give that to me. And I think it's important to say that for the loved ones that get drugged through the shit and luckily or unluckily for you, our period of time together when I was stuck in my addiction hardcore, it was a very short period of time. So what I'm trying to get at is we as addicts, we look for some sort of congratulations or pat on the back when we finally decide that we have reached a point that we need help, we want some outside, yeah, right on, you're doing the fucking thing. But we can't always expect our families to give us that because we haven't been, we haven't had the opportunity to show that we are going to follow through with exactly what we say. Um, I know the... I could, I could speak for myself in that. Like that's something that I was looking for was like, Oh, finally, thank God. And I don't feel like I got that for me, which is, which was huge. And I don't know. Um, I don't know where the fuck I'm going with this, but I want it. I, I want to make the point that as addicts and alcoholics, when we decide on our own, that it's, time to get some help that we can't rely on outside sources to validate that that is the best thing for us. I, I, I agree with you, honey. That's I actually never thought about it from that perspective before, but you're right. I didn't. I was like, okay, so what does that mean? So what do we do next then? You know, and you were so, I remember you just being so worried about me leaving you. And it's like, we'll worry about that later. Like, let's focus on the task at hand. And, you know, you want to go to rehab? Let's, let's go through that and deal with that. And, you know, our relationship at, at that point in my mind, our relationship was secondary to that. Like your, 
getting clean and sober and trying to trying to figure out how to stay that way was way more important than being in a relationship with me um, in my mind. So maybe that's part of why, like my, I just, in my mind, I just went to work like, okay, we're going to go to work on this now. So all those other things, I need to put them out of my mind right now. We're not, I'm not going to like harbor. I've tried very hard in the beginning not to harbor, you know, feelings of anger and resentment. Those came a little bit later, I think. Um, but I just wanted to focus and I wanted to support you, but I'm also not a very good cheerleader. So it would go against everything in me to be like, yeah, babe, fuck yeah, you did the right thing. Let's, let's go, let's do this. So I'm very like, okay, so put your words into actions and let's see what you got for me. Yeah, and so we did. So I did. And I think, um, you know, we finally, we did we did a whole bunch of legwork. I know that you were very instrumental in, because at that point, like I was a fucking wreck. Like I thought that my life was over. Um I think I was sleeping on the floor in the other room and I just didn't want to talk to anybody about it. So you were very instrumental in doing a bunch of the legwork, finding out where I was going, um, what it was going to take for me to get there, how we were going to afford it, so on and so forth. Um, so the day, the day we left, I remember very vividly, um, I think I wanted a fucking drink and I don't, I don't think that I had a drink before we left. I think I was pretty much done when I made the decision to go off to rehab, but I do remember, I think this is fucking hilarious. I do remaking me, uh, making myself because we were, we were fucking broke at the time for sure. I mean, we're still broke, but we were most definitely broke at the time. I remember making the gourmet grilled cheese sandwich, uh, putting the bread in the toaster, throwing a, a piece of craft cheese on it and throw it in the microwave. And then we were in the car and we were gone. And, um, it was you and my mom that drove me up to Azure. I remember, I think I sat in the back seat. Um, and I remember that you guys were having some conversation about some extern, external things that were going on. I think at the time my cousins were getting married. So you guys were kind of talking about that. And I remember just sitting in the back seat, like not having a fucking thought on my mind. I remember rolling up there. And we pulled up to Azure Acres and we start, I'm getting a chill right now. We started walking up to where you check in at. And I think I, I kind of, I think I broke down, right? And then I broke down and as through the whole check-in process, I completely shut down. Like I didn't want to talk about anything. Um, so that's kind of how my, my vision went. What, how, how was that day for you, babe? Well, it must have been a good week if we had bread and cheese for you to make one of your famous <laughs> yeah, no gourmet <laughs> grilled cheese sandwiches. Must have been living the high life that week. But uh, no, I do. I remember. I just remember your movements that de- that day being very slow, like you were walking through a pool of water or something. Everything that you did was, um, and still kind of is actually at a glacial pace. But it, it was just a. It was a gloomy time, and I think it was more because you had been breaking down over those days leading up to going. So, you know, and that's just hard to watch. It's hard to watch someone you love sit there and cry, but not be able to speak. And, you know, you did. You did withdraw from me. You did sleep in the office on the floor because you you didn't want to be around anybody, and that was hard to let you do that. I probably wasn't very good at letting you do that. Um, but, you, you know, when your mom got there and... <laughs> Your mom in her fashion trying to be the little ray of sunshine that she tries to be sometimes, you know, and just kind of tucks us in the car and we drive off. And I I had no idea where we were going. I'd never been to Sebastopol. I still probably couldn't tell you how to get there. Um, And and you were in the backseat and you were very quiet. And I think I remember hearing you cry a few times. And your mom and I just tried to fill the car with useless conversation because it was uncomfortable. I mean, I didn't really have a relationship with your parents at that point. My interactions with them were very limited because your interactions with them were very limited at that time in your life. So that was really uncomfortable for me. Um, and, you know, getting to Azure, I remember you getting out of the car and you just kind of standing there and looking up at this. I mean, the place is absolutely beautiful. Um, it's actually quite breathtaking, but it's just not knowing what to expect. And we all kind of 
well, you and I kind of drug our feet going up the hill, getting into the intake room. Um, it was just all sort of like there was a fog around us and listening to what the intake lady had to say and, you know, sitting you on a table and watching you cry. It, it was, it was rough. And the, I, the hardest part though, like I think that I kept it together for most of the part until I had to leave because they are like, okay, bye, get the fuck out. Like he's ours now. And I wasn't really prepared for that. Like I knew that I was taking him somewhere where I was going to have to leave him. Um, but I, up until that moment, I hadn't really thought about that moment because of all these other things going on and all these other thoughts and worries and concerns. It's like, oh shit, I really do have to leave him here. And it's kind of far away from where we live. And when they told me that I couldn't talk to him for the first five days, right, babe? It's like a, yeah. they call yeah, it a it detox the first, period. The, black, the blackout. The blackout the first period. Five days yeah. Blackout, so yeah. no phone calls, nothing. And during that period was his 30th birthday. So I had to send him a card. I couldn't call him. I couldn't talk to him. Um, and that was, you know, what do you, what do you write in a card to your boyfriend of, you know, eight months on his 30th birthday who's spending it in rehab? Like, that was tough. It was a, that day was tough. And I cried the whole way home. And your your poor mom, like she doesn't, she didn't know me very well either. So, you know, she was just quiet and kind of tried to be soothing and supportive, but it was, you know, I'll never forget it. That's for sure. Yeah. And so it's, uh, it, I think it's, I think it's kind of crazy to think about, you know, like you were, you had your emotions because you were having to leave me in this unknown place. If, if that's kind of what I'm hearing and you didn't really know what the next step was going to bring. You didn't know what rehab meant. You didn't know what was going to come out of it. And you had real emotions over real things. I think my biggest thing was I was sad that I was losing my best friend. I was sad that I was going to have to, at that point in time, when I decided that I wasn't going to do this anymore, that I wasn't going to drink anymore. So I was losing the, the, the buddy that gave me the courage to go out and speak and hang out to people. I was losing the buddy that gave me the courage to deal or not deal with my emotions that I would have in the small amount of times that I wasn't intoxicated or high as fuck. And I think that it's kind of, it's kind of sad in a way, right? Like I, I didn't really think, um, too much about what was going to happen next. I had those emotions of losing my best friend. And in that, at that point in time, it was Jim and Budweiser. And, uh, you know, obviously I was doing cocaine at the time, um, and smoking a shit ton of weed at the time. So I was sad over that fact. Um, as I, as, as the week kind of, kind of rolled on for me, I really realized where I was at, um, and what it was going to take to get through that. I do remember, Um, I think that first week I do remember wanting to talk to you pretty much every day, but I think it was probably one of the best things that could have happened for both of us. Well, for me anyways, because I had the ability, ability, ability to focus on, you know, what it meant to be at Azure Acres and what it meant to be in treatment. So they usually say that, um, alcohol or drug addiction ends you up in one of four places, institution, um, death institution or death. So that's four things. And I remember sitting there in the first, you know, the first day or two, we had one of our, our very first meetings and it was like, um, the, one of the counselors that was given the class was given the talk and they were talking about that. And they were like, you are in a fucking institution. And it was at that point in time that I realized like, holy fuck, like this is real. And whether I'm going to come out on, of this on top or come out of this on the bottom, like I don't really know, but I'm here now and I'm ready to immerse myself into this. And I could only imagine, you know, what was going through your head and what was going through your mind that whole week um, that we weren't able to talk to each other but that week finally passed, right? And I was able to call you 
Um, I think we talked, I think we, it was like a 15 minute time, time limit on the phones or something, but we talked, what was that first conversation like? Um, oh man, the anticipation of that first conversation was, uh, there was, I had a lot of anticipation. I wasn't sure what to expect. Right. And then, and I, I think I remember you sounding sad you know um it had only been five days and it's kind of, i have to admit it's kind of hard to recall i mean i remember like talking to you and the feelings that i felt i don't remember exactly what was being said but i think you know you were overwhelmed you were still in your feelings of shame pretty bad i do remember you stressing to me a few times that you did not want me to tell anybody where you were which in turn made me angry at you for trying to make me go through this all by myself um, by not wanting me to talk to anybody because you because of how you were feeling and at that point I don't think you were yet recognizing fully how I was feeling um so it was our first conversation it, it I mean, I was glad to hear your voice. Obviously, I was glad to hear that you were, you know, not, you were physically okay, that, that, you know, they were treating you well, that you were connecting with the people there and stuff, but you did, you, you sounded sad. And so it's, again, hard to live with those intermittent unknown when, you know, the phone calls, like, when am I going to get a phone call from him? What is he going to sound like? you know, how is today going for him? And, and, and I think you did run down that they have like a pretty regimented schedule and your free time was very limited. So, um, I did always have an idea of when you would be able to call, but it was that first phone call. I think I didn't start feeling better until my first weekend that I got to come and visit you, put a lot of my anxieties at ease for how, how you were being treated, you know, up until that point, like I wanted to be the only person to take care of you and help you through this. And when I firstly, when I got to go up there and be a part of your day, um, did definitely make me feel better. And by that point you were feeling better too. So, so that was good. Yeah. And so that, I guess that was going to be my next question. At, At what point was it that you realized that I was right where I needed to be? And it sounds like when you had the opportunity to come up and visit, um, I think it was like a week and a half, something like uh, that. Yeah. Week and a half after I had already been there. Um, on Saturdays and Sundays, the family was allowed to come up and sit through. Um, it wasn't fucking hangout time. That's for sure. It was a lot of, um, you know, family sessions. Uh, I think we did a one-on-one with the counselors. Um, so it was at that point in time that you realized that I was right where I needed to be. Um, I definitely, the first, the first visit, it gave me great comfort. I wasn't... At that point, I think you were still resistant to the people around you. I think you were still kind of like, well, like, I'm not like this fuck up over here, you know, and this fucking guy over here, he's been here like six times and this guy, you know, you still sort of had that attitude. So, um, it was, it was kind of hard to see through that, but I could tell physically that you were feeling better. Um, you looked better, like you're just looking at you and, you know, and, and when you would smile, it was a, it was a different kind of smile. And, and I felt comfort just because it goes to my nature that it was a very organized program and they had all the minutes of our day planned out with different activities, you know, and classes that we sat in on stuff like that. And in my mind, your life has always been chaos. And one thing that I think that you have always needed was routine and regiment. And I think that's why for a minute, the military really worked for you. And it's why it's something that you're still kind of drawn to because they do give you a pretty regimented life. And it, it's something that you need. You need that organization and routine to kind of keep you going. And so I did feel comfort in that because it was working for you. You were telling me that you were enjoying like some of the exercise classes that they were doing and the books that they were reading and, you know, stuff like that, the free time and the socializing part, I could tell was still very uncomfortable for you. Um, but I, I, I had great faith in the staff and, and everybody was so welcoming that I very much looked forward to my weekend visits with you after that point. 
it was the hard, the hardest one I think was the weekend that, um, we had to do our one-on-one -on -one and then we had to do our family session with your parents. That was, that was right before you came home. And that one, that one was the toughest. Yeah. And then, so, so we made it through four weeks of rehab and, you know, that's just a kind of a testament of, of your character, Melanie, of, of your ability and maybe the level of love that you had for me that you stuck by my side through that whole four week period. And it was rough, man. It was, it was hard for me to be away from home and, you know, to kind of understand that you were still trying to hold together the household that we had shared together. Um, and that, that was hard. And I must, I must admit, you know, that a lot of that took away from me kind of focusing on the treatment program. Um, you know, but I do, I do believe that me going to treatment was the very start, um, to my recovery. So we finally, so we made it through that. Um, and I had graduated. I, I think you, um, you alone came up and you picked me up and you drove my truck up here. I will never forget the words, the first words out of your mouth. Let's get the fuck out Let's of here. Let's get the fuck out of here. I yeah. Cause like, I was wow, ready. Okay. I was ready. I was ready to, um, I was ready to start my new life. Um, I was ready to start a life of, sobriety i was ready to start a life of recovery and man by the time we got home like i was still super pumped i was you know gonna gonna dive deep into my my recovery i was gonna go to meetings every day i was gonna do this i was gonna do that um come to find out when we got home after the first couple of days it wasn't that didn't play out no it didn't it was, uh, I mean, yeah, it, I, I, I just remember feeling like, yeah, welcome home. This is it. This is our life. It's still the same exact life that you left behind. Nothing has changed here in the 30 days that you've been gone. So I didn't, I didn't really know what to expect other than, you know, you're supposed to go to your meetings and you're supposed to be reaching out to certain people, but the counseling that I had gotten from your rehab facility kind of, I got the impression that I wasn't really supposed to be urging you to do those things. So it, it was, it was murky waters for me. I, um, your enthusiasm, it definitely. It waned. fell off really quick. It did. It did. And those next few months, I think that's probably the time that I built up the most anger and resentment towards you. Yeah. And I think it's, I think it's in a very important topic for me to bring up, you know, leave me leaving recovery. I had this thought in my mind that I was fixed and that all my problems were fixed. And I think it's important um, to say that just because I went to recovery, you know, it did play out that not all of my problems were fixed. I was only given the tools um, at treatment to start working through the problems that had, um, that I had been kind of eluding or stepping, sidestepping that have played out through my whole life. And, you know, I will admit that at first coming home, like I kind of had the, um, sense of, that it should just be given to me, that I should just feel this way. And I remember there was quite a long period of time that we didn't really know how to interact with each other. We didn't really know how to get outside of our house and go out and socialize together um, because I didn't do the things that I was supposed to be doing right outside of rehab. And... I think it's it's in very it's very important to say that just because one goes off to treatment or one goes off to rehab that they are not fixed. There is work to do, um, very hard work to do after that, and somehow, some way, um, we made it through that first uh, ninety days. We made it through the first year. We even made it through the first, second year because for me, I don't think um, shit really started getting, I shouldn't say easy because it's never easy, 
But stuff, sobriety didn't become second nature for me until I, until probably year three. Um, year three is kind of when I started um, reaching out a little bit more. I started doing some readings and I really started to adapt some of the tools and use some of the tools that were given to me in rehab. Um, I allude to, I've alluded to this multiple times. I truly believe that my time in treatment and my time in rehab was a sense of brainwashing because of the, some of the message that methods that I started to live my life after year two, after year three, um, I started to adapt them into my life and I started to actually live that way. And I think that that, that timeline was so long is because right after I had gotten out, I didn't do the work that was recommended for me to do. I, during that time, remained kind of like a, like a dry drunk. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's important for me to say that I, I could always go back to that if I don't continue to, in my mind, live the, live the life that I have kind of lived with the same mindset over the last five years because I don't believe that my sobriety really started until after year two or three. So what I'd like to do is kind of talk a little bit about that first and second year. Like, what did that look like for you? For me? For you. Oh, there's not somebody else in the room. Oh. Um, I guess it just, it looked a whole, to me, like my my feelings were a, a whole lot of the same feelings that I had before you went to rehab, you know, kind of, especially, I think they started to change once you went back to work, but that still didn't come for a while. I think it was another like six months or so. Yep. Um, after rehab that you didn't get your first call back to work. So it was still sort of that, like, what am I going to come home to today? What is, you know, what is he going to be like when I get there? Is it going to be a good day? Is it going to be a bad day? You know, we had all these other stresses in our life happening that are like everyday normal stresses for everyone. Nobody is immune to them as far as like work and money and bills and, you know, family stuff and all of that. And then we have this other big, to me, like black cloud kind of hanging over, right? Because it was still something that you didn't like to talk about. Um, you weren't going to your meetings, which was making me really angry with you. And you had yet to find somebody else that could be in your life that could be on the same plane with you. Because obviously that's, it's not something that I will ever be able to relate to with you. And that was, that was really hard because as your partner, I wanted to help you through that. But there are things I know that I could never help you with. And it was, um, you know, gives you as the partner your own sense of like failure and um, insignificance in their life, right? Because there's a whole other side of you that I'll, I'll never be a part of. And uh, I think once the anticipation of you going back to work was a lot, and then once you finally did, you had a lot of feelings about that too. Because for work, you being social at work, like there were things that you did at work, you know, on your way to work, while you were at work, after work, like you had this whole routine around work. So even going back to work, you know, I think the only reason that you did it as quickly as you could was because we needed money. Like, I don't think that you were mentally ready to go back into that environment that you had been working in, um, but you forced yourself to do it. And I'm, you know, proud of you for that. I'm proud of you for all of this. But it was, um, it was a lot of the same feelings I had while you were still drinking, to be honest with you, because it was just, there was a lot of anxiety and unknown about it. I wasn't, if you weren't going to your meetings and you weren't going to go to your therapy and you weren't, you know, there were, I think they even tried to prescribe a couple of different medications to you for like night terrors and depression and you refused to take those. And it was like, well, what the fuck are you going to do then? You're throwing away all the tools that they're giving you. You're not using anything that they taught you in rehab. Like where, where are we going to go with this? And it was like that for a long time. Yeah. And then so, so the, and then there was a shift and I can't even really point, put my finger on what that shift was. Um, I don't know. Do you, do you have any idea what that could have been? Um, I think part of it was when we left that house, 
when we had the opportunity to move into the home that we have now, um, all of the, you know, cause every day you were stuck at home, right? Because you weren't working. And every day when I would come home, being in that house and remembering everything that happened in that house made it harder for me anyways, to put it behind me. So I can't imagine what it was like for you, you know, sitting in the same living room where you had done drugs off the cup table, you know, or standing in the kitchen where our entire refrigerator, I think was full of Mickey's big mouths at one point, you know, like, so when not, and you were very resistant to moving, it was not something that you wanted to do. And I was very adamant, like, we need to get the fuck out of here. And when we moved out of that house and we were able to leave that shit behind as much as I loved that house, it, that was a new beginning for me and for you and for a new project and a new focus and a new, just kind of brought a new energy to our relationship. I feel like, um, because I wanted to leave behind like not just the drinking and the fighting and the whatever, but like just that, that depressed dark cloud that hung over that house with all of those memories and all of those feelings. Like I couldn't get out of there fast enough. And I don't know if you remember that, like you sitting in the garage, like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to move. I don't like, this is a bad idea or whatever. I was like, no, we're fucking doing it. Like you don't even have an option in this. Like it's happening. Like we can't stay here. We have to leave. And you know, and you did it. And I, I think that, that played a role and I don't think that was, you know, everything, but I think that it helped. I think that it helped in the shift. Yeah, most definitely. I mean, yeah, I do remember saying like, nah, fuck not. Nah, we ain't fucking moving. I don't want to move. We can't do this. Um, but yeah, that's a, that's a very good point. I mean, and then I also believe at that point in time, you know, it's really when I started to realize that um, I didn't need to use drugs or alcohol in my life in order to maintain like I had put some time together by the grace of whatever it is to kind of really learn that new lifestyle. And I, I do agree that maybe the change of scenery, the houses probably had a, a, a very huge effect on it. Um, I also, you know, at that time when we moved, I was working with a sponsor um, for a short amount of time. And I think that that kind of got me into the mindset of sobriety is my only option. I don't have any other options other than that. And either I could be a miserable fuck in sobriety like I was the first two years out of rehab, or I could really begin to work on myself and really begin to work on the relationship that we had. Um, So getting back, I think that it's super, super important. And one of the intents of the show is to um, bring the light that just because one goes to rehab doesn't mean that all the problems are fixed. It's just the beginning. It's a it's a hardware store of sorts, right? You go in there, you get the tools and material that you need to build the life that you want to lead for the rest of your life. And I think that that looking at um, Azure Acres as that, looking at it as my ace or my Home Depot, and then looking at the rest of my life as the building that I'm trying to build. Um, I think that that's huge. And also, you know, the the different recovery programs that are out there going back and getting some hardware for that to continue the build, to build the life that I want to live um, is, is, is kind of the way that I, I see my life nowadays. And it's also, you know, it's important to say that it's never going to be perfect. Like this, it's not to say that because I'm in sobriety that my life is is perfect because it's not. I still have trials and tribulations. Me and Mel, we still go through shit. But I think now after, you know, the, the Azure Acres stay in the first two years, I think that we have been equipped with a good amount of tools to where I don't ever see myself looking back now. With that being said, I always remember those moments. I truly re- believe that those moments keep me from going back to where I was at um, before, for sure.
So, honey, was there anything else that you wanted to touch on um, on life after rehab um, from the time that I got out and up to now? Um, just that I'm very grateful. I'm very grateful for those dark times because they've led to our much better times. And it gives us both the opportunity to reflect sometimes when we get a little out of our head and a little um, overwhelmed or, you know, feel the stresses of life coming down. It's like, well, fuck, we've dealt with worse. We can deal with this, you know, and, um, and just trying to keep, kind of keep that momentum going that it's always a work in progress. And, and I just, I think it's important for any, anybody out there that might be in the position that I was in eight years ago, even the position that I'm still in today, right. That it's not, alcoholism and drug addiction is a family disease you know like it's not just the person that's that's in the disease's um job to do the work like there's work for us to do too and the only way that it's going to be successful is if you work together on it you know reach out get help have a better understanding of what your loved one's going through have a better understanding of the position that it's put you in whether you want to recognize yourself as a codependent or not like that's you know, something that you're probably going to come across and you're probably going to hear and what that really means. And it's, it's not a bad thing. Um, but you know, there are resources out there for us as well as there are for our loved ones. And I just really, really encourage that you find an outlet that works for you because you're going to need it. Yeah. Thank you. And thank you so much, babe, for coming on today. I, you know, I greatly appreciate it. I think it's I think it's super important that we, you know, reiterate that we are not addiction professionals by any means. We're not counselors. Um, we're just two people that um, have been through this shit. And we hope that by using the Sober Guy platform that we have the ability to say something or help someone that's going through some shit in their lives. Um, it's also important to say that I am not cured by any means. Um this, this addiction of mine, you know, has the opportunity to rise at any time. It's like the sleeping tiger, right? The sleeping tiger could rise at any time. And at the moment that I stop working on that and stop realizing that, you know, my addiction could come back and I could put my lovely wife, my stepdaughter through the shit that I put him through before this, um, is the, is the, is the moment that I stop growing. So again, I don't want to sit up here and say, you know, that I have or that Melanie has all the answers because we don't. We could only give our, um, we could only talk to our experiences. Melanie, is there anything else, any other words of advice that you'd like to share with the listeners out there? Um, any, any parting words that you'd like to say? Um, just that uh, I'm here if anybody has any questions. I think Seth gave you my email address. It's mel at thatsoberguy.com. Please feel free, to, feel free to reach out if you should do so. And um, thank you for listening. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks again. Again, this is the Tuesday episode of That Sober Guy with Seth Manter. Much love for tuning in today. Love, respect, and keep your blood clean.